others around us without compromising our faith in Jesus Christ. One thing that's helpful in this whole change in our culture is that it's becoming more similar. It's getting easier to interpret the New Testament because our culture is starting to look a lot more like first century culture in the Roman Empire, which also is made up of many different religions and philosophies and lifestyles. And so we look at a passage like this. Matter of fact, we've been really talking about this kind of issue for several chapters now, haven't we? In chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians, we saw back in the beginning of chapter 8 that this whole section, the whole middle section of this letter that Paul wrote, wrote to the Christians in Corinth, it was all triggered by a question about cultural engagement, wasn't it? It's triggered by the question that was asked of Paul. They said to Paul, should we eat meat that had at one time been offered as a sacrifice to an idol in a pagan temple? Should we eat the meat that at one time in its past had been offered as a sacrifice to a false god? That was the question that Paul was asked. He spent three chapters answering it. I'm sure that the people in Corinth just wanted a simple yes or no answer. And Paul proceeds to take three chapters to give an answer to the question because there's no simple answer. Because it deals with this complicated area between where the kingdom of God collides with the cultures of this world. In chapters 8 and 9, remember, Paul said, you can eat the meat. The meat is fine. Go ahead and eat it unless there is a weaker brother present. Another believer who believes that it's wrong to eat the meat, wrongly believes that the meat is wrong, it's wrong to eat the meat, but if he does not yet know, he doesn't yet understand, don't eat in front of him so that he will eat and be encouraged to do something that would violate his conscience. Even though his belief is wrong, yet he believes he's trying to honor the Lord by abstaining. If you eat, you may actually ask him to do something he believes is wrong, which would be dishonoring to the Lord. But then in chapter 10, Paul addressed a slightly different issue related to this whole question, which is he found out that there were some of these Corinthian Christians that were actually eating the meat that had been offered to idols in the context of idol worship. They were joining with the fellowship meals that took place in the pagan temples in conjunction with idol worship. And Paul says, don't eat, don't go to those meals, don't associate yourself with idol worship and proceeded to show them that idol worship is demon worship. Don't play with that sin. Matter of fact, he says, flee. He says, don't eat. Matter of fact, don't eat. Matter of fact, go to the other street. Flee from there because you want to have no association with idolatry. We do that with the Lord, don't we? We, want, we say to him, you know, it's so complicated, Lord, to know what it means to be a faithful disciple in the 21st century in America. Just tell us what to do. Just give us a list of do's and don'ts. Don't make it so complicated. Do you realize how big the Bible would be if the, if the Lord gave us do's and don'ts for every possible issue that we would face in life? This would be a thousand-volume set. And that's not what the Word of God does. The Word of God gives us principles that reflect the very holy character of the God who created us and redeemed us, and then helps us learn how to apply those principles to all the variety of experiences and situations that we find ourselves in in day-to-day life. 
That's the way the Old Testament law worked. We have the Ten Commandments. God summarized his entire law in Ten Commandments. But once you start to try to apply those commandments, you realize it's very complicated in some situations. And so you've got the principles of God's law given in the Ten Commandments, but then you have a lot of the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, is made up of case law. Here's how you apply the Ten Commandments in this situation. And those are used just as examples, illustrations of what the principles of the law are. And the New Testament continues to do that. That's what Paul's been doing for three chapters. Should we eat meat that had been offered to, in sacrifice to idols? Well, yes and no. In some situations, yes. Some situations, no. Let me help you apply the principles. So I want to talk about those principles as we wrap it up. Finally, we will stop talking about meat being offered to idols after today. Paul will move on to some other controversial issues in chapter 11. But here he summarizes the principles, what I call the principles of engagement with your culture. The principles of engagement. Look at verse 23. We've seen that verse before, haven't we? He actually said almost word for word the same thing back in chapter 6. Before he got into the whole meat offered to idols, he's actually in that context talking about interacting with the world around them in terms of sexual issues, sexual immorality. But he says, you know, in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. That's what the Corinthians were saying. I'm a Christian. I've been forgiven for all my sins. I have liberty in Christ. I'm not bound by the consciences of others. I can do as I please to serve God. And Paul says, yeah, you do have Christian liberty, but all the things you do aren't necessarily helpful. He goes on to say, all things are lawful, all things are permissible for me, but not all things build up. And then he states the principle that he's getting at very clearly in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, I may have the right to eat meat that at one point had been offered as a sacrifice to our night. I have a right to do that as a Christian, but that doesn't mean that I should exercise that right in all occasions, in all situations. What he's getting at is that this is something we as Christians don't want to hear. It's not as simple as doing what you have the freedom to do in Christ. You have to be sensitive to the people around you because you are put here not to serve your own wants and needs, You are put here by the Lord. You are redeemed. You are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ so that you can serve others, build up others. And so the first principle that Paul's getting across here is that we are to have a winsome witness to unbelievers. We don't use that word winsome anymore like we used to, but the word winsome just means pleasing to others, attractive, engaging, even charming. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I am accountable for how my actions, all of my actions, my sinful actions, but even the things I'm allowed to do in Christ, I'm accountable for how they affect the people around me. The Lord calls me to be a sensitive witness for Christ. Not all lawful things, not all things that I'm allowed to do, according to Scripture, build up others. Some things, even though I'm allowed to do them, just me dealing with God in my own personal relationship with him, if I do them in the presence of others because of their perspectives, their perceptions, their scruples, their worldview, my actions can actually, Paul says back in chapter 8, tear them down. 
It can cause a weaker brother, a brother in Christ even, to stumble. It can destroy people, he says in chapter 8. We have to be sensitive to the perceptions and scruples of everyone around us. You see, keeping the law isn't just a to-do list or a to-don't list. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. If you do all these things, God's absolutely pleased with you. If you don't do all these things, then he's upset with you. That's not how keeping the law or being a obedient Christian works. It's not only about what we do, but why we do it. The Lord was very clear about that. That's, what, that's really the underlying message of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just what you do, but why you do it. We read that passage from Matthew 22 earlier in our service, where he says that you can summarize the entire law in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your being, or love your, and love your neighbor by yourself, as yourself, as you do yourself. Put the interests of your neighbor before your own interest, as Paul would say later. Or Paul says in Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So it's not just enough to do what the law requires, but you need to do it for the right reason, for love for God and love for your neighbor. And so the answer can never be a simple eat or don't eat. It depends on whether eating or not eating is loving to your neighbor. And so Paul, again, he's using this whole thing as an illustration of how to engage your culture. So in verse 25, he tells the the Corinthian Christians, if you're shopping in the meat market and you want to buy some meat, don't ask where it came from. Now that would be an obvious thing for a Christian to think about in that culture because almost all the meat came from pagan temples. The, the, The meat would be sacrificed at the pagan temples and then it would be taken to the marketplace and sold. And so most of the meat would have, been, would have come from that uh, origin. And matter of fact, Jewish rabbis in that day, unbelieving Jewish rabbis, taught Jewish people that they were to, ne- to always ask where the meat came from in the marketplace so that they could be sure that it hadn't been offered to an idol. And Paul is directly contradicting that. He's saying, the meat is fine to eat, Don't ask where it came from. Don't raise that issue. Don't raise the issue of where it came from. Because outside of the context of idol worship, it's just meat. But in verse 27, then, he introduces another test case, another application. What if a Corinthian believer was invited to an unbeliever's home, presumably an idol worshiper, invited over for dinner, and they serve meat? Should you ask whether the meat came from a pagan temple or not? Or should you just eat it? And Paul says, just eat it. It doesn't matter. The meat is fine. It's outside the context. It's not associated with worship. But, do you notice what he says? He changes it. But if the host announces to everybody at the meal that it had come from the pagan temple and it had been offered as a sacrifice to a false god, he says, don't eat it then. Why? because the host of the meal just introduced idol worship into the context. He made a point of saying that this meat is special. It has significance because it had been offered to an idol. And so for a Christian then to partake of that meat would be to associate yourself with idol worship. And so don't. So again, Paul's saying it's not a clear yes or no. He says For the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Be sensitive to the consciences of others. Don't 
give a bad witness for Christ by what you do in that situation. Don't eat it if there's a possibility of offending someone's conscience. The unbeliever might look at the Christian eating that meat and say, hey, Christians are okay with idol worship. Or he may look at it and say, hey, I know some Christians who won't touch meat that have been offered to an idol, so therefore you must not really care that much about your faith in Christ. The important thing is that others are built up by the way we live our lives. That Christ is shown to be attractive by the way we live. A winsome witness is one that is attractive and appealing to those around us. But that's recognizing that the gospel is offensive. Always recognize that the message that we have come to proclaim to the world and the Lord and Savior who died for our sins and was raised from the dead for our justification, that Jesus Christ is offensive to most of the world. We have to have a winsome witness while accepting the fact that to some we will be the aroma of life, Paul says, and to others we will be the stench of death. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And Paul keeps mentioning the offense of the cross. We cannot change our message even slightly because the Holy Spirit is drawing some to life and others are being hardened all around us. Our message must stay the same, but we must be careful. What the Lord is saying to us in this chapter is we must be careful to not add unnecessary offense to the gospel. And that requires studying your neighbors, studying your co-workers, studying family members who are different from you, knowing them, spending time with them, so that you can accommodate insofar as not compromising your relationship to Christ and the message of the gospel allows, so that you can accommodate to them so that you can be that winsome witness to them. As I was studying this passage this week, I was reminded of the experience I've had with an evangelism training program that I'm sure many of you have come across called Evangelism Explosion. Evangelism Explosion was developed down in the Deep South in the 1960s and 70s. And it, it is actually a very clear, concise, theologically sound presentation of the truths of the gospel. And it's a very useful tool in terms of really knowing a presentation of the gospel and memorizing it in a way that you can communicate it well. But it, there, a key to evangelism explosion training is what they call on-the-job training. And that involves going out into your neighborhood and knocking on doors and trying to share the gospel with a stranger within one visit. That worked okay in the Deep South in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. It hasn't worked in the North as a methodology for getting the gospel out there in a long time. I tried it in the 90s in the suburbs of Philadelphia And we got a lot of doors shut in our face. We got a lot of nasty things said to us. And I ended up with a whole bunch of discouraged witnesses. And so we had to find another method. Because the message was absolutely true. The message was vital for us to communicate to our neighbors. But that was not a culturally sensitive way to get the truth to them. 
We need to have a winsome witness. But we have to make sure that we guard our own conscience and our own lives. And that brings me to Paul's second point, which is that our witness must be principled. It must be winsome, but it must be principled. In verse 26, you notice, if you go back to verse 26, Paul made sure that these Christians understood the theology behind their freedom to eat the meat. He didn't just say that it's okay to eat the meat. He gives them the theological reason why it was okay to eat meat that had at one point in its past been offered to idols. He quotes Psalm 24, verse 1, where it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He points back to creation. Who created the animal? To whom does that animal belong? Who sustains the life of that animal? Who gave the meat of the animal as a gift to man to be able to nourish him and strengthen him? It's a gift from God. Matter of fact, that verse, Psalm 24.1, was quoted often in the prayers of Jewish people at mealtime. So they already had that verse associated with food. And so the message is, God is the creator, God is the owner, God is the provider of all good things, including that meat. And so the principle of James 1.17 applies. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Or as Paul said to Timothy in chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, he condemns some false teachers who, according to to what Paul says there, were requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. And he goes on to say, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God created this. It's a gift to us. What What the idol worshipers, the pagans had done, was taken God's good gift and abused it, corrupted it, offered it in in rejection of the one true God, they offered it to a false God. But it's still originally a gift from God, and we have every right as a Christian to embrace that gift and redeem it under submission to the Lord. We sanctify it, Paul says, in that chapter, chapter 4, 1 Timothy uh, 4. He says, we sanctify it by the word of God in prayer. When we receive God's good gifts as, with thanksgiving from him as the giver, then we honor God by the partaking of it. But Paul goes on in verse 29 and 30 to say, make sure that as you live out in this, this gray area, this, this place where the c- culture of the kingdom of God and the cultures of this world are colliding, make sure that your conscience is prepared to go into that battle zone. Make sure that your conscience is prepared not to compromise, to be conformed to the thinking and ways of the world. He says in verse 29, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? I may accommodate to the consciences of others, but I should not be conformed to the consciences of unbelievers. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. We as Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, have the responsibility of training our consciences. Training our consciences by in-depth study of the Word of God. It takes work. It takes study. You need to know the Word of God. And I'll tell you this morning that if you want to enter into cultural engagement, don't do it unless you have become a real student of the Word of God. 
If you don't know the word of God and don't have the principles of God's word to guide you as you go into cultural engagement, you will become a victim of cultural engagement and you will begin to conform. You, don't, you may know what the right and wrong answers are, but you won't know why and you will begin to conform. You need to be a student of the word so that you can take these good gifts that God has created in the world and that the culture has so badly abused and redeem them and present them not only to the glory of God, but also as a witness to those around you. This is how God intended for this to be used. Many of you know I love music, and I'm somewhat of a student of the history of music. And one of the things about how music styles have developed throughout the course of history is how where, we think about where do the music styles tend to develop? Where did we get new music styles from? Think about jazz. Jazz originated in some of the darkest, seediest, most corrupt parts of our culture. And in the, the beginning, those people of decent culture knew to reject that style of music because of its association to evil, to wickedness. But eventually what happened is that believers recognized that this was a good gift from God, that this music is actually beautiful, and it's created according to God's principles, whether the original creators of it recognized that or not. And they began to redeem it and to use it for the glory of God to the point where eventually that association is broken. In my lifetime, I've watched the same thing happen with rock and roll. Rock and roll was of the devil because it was that, you know, that's the way it is. It's, it tends to be the rebellious elements of society that get most creative with music because that's what they live for is to defy the norms, to, to react against whatever the conservative principles are of the day. And so they experiment. They do things that other people aren't doing. And sometimes they create beautiful forms of music. But because of their lifestyle, because of their philosophy, because of their worldview, they corrupt it and they abuse it, just like the pagans did the meat in the temples. But I've watched during the course of my lifetime as the church, as believers, have taken that gift of music and have redeemed it and abused it and made it to the glory of God as a witness to the world. And that's the way it should happen. But we have to be careful. When you think about that transition, there was a time the 1980s and 90s particularly, in the church was a difficult time because the association wasn't completely broken. And so I understand why many of my Christian brothers and sisters looked at contemporary music being brought into the church and said, it's of the devil. You should have nothing to do with it because that strong association was still there. You have to be very careful. It's a real test and a trial for the church to not cause offense to the Jews and to the Greeks and to the church of God during times of those transitions. But that's what it means to engage your culture, to study your culture, to embrace what's good about your culture. It means making very difficult decisions, and it means being very sensitive to the consciences of those around you, not causing weaker brothers to stumble, but also not conforming to the principles and consciences of the world. That's Christ-like love in action. That's what it means to bear your cross and follow him. To live to be a servant as he gave up his life for others. To lay down your rights for the sake of building up others. Which brings us to the last principle. Is that we are to be people pleasers. But only for the Lord. Look at verse 31. 
Paul gives the ultimate guiding principle for cultural engagement in verse 31. This is how to have a principled but winsome witness before the world. He says, so whatever you, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria has been the motto of the church from the beginning. Glory to God alone. That's the church's prime directive. Every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our lives has the ultimate purpose of showing how good, how faithful, how loving, how merciful, how powerful, how sovereign, how just our God is. And we are to live to show that. Everything we do, eating, drinking, playing music, whatever we do, we do it to show how great our God is. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do all things to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. That's our prime directive. Okay, all you Trekkies out there. What was the prime directive of the Federation of Planets? What was the prime directive? Ben? What's the prime directive? (laughs) Do not interfere. I'm so ashamed of you, Ben. You're the one guy I thought would know this for sure. (laughs) He did know it. Just not good on on the spot. No, the prime directive is to never interfere with the development of an alien culture. I was just thinking about that this week. If living to the glory of God, to show our culture how great our God is, is that's our prime directive, how opposite is that to the prime directive of the Federation? We are to interfere in our culture. We are to live and proclaim the gospel to transform our culture. But it must be, and it can only be effective through a winsome and principled witness for Christ. Paul says in verses 32 and 33, in verse 1 of chapter 11, give no offense. Give no offense to Jews, Greeks, or the church. And then he points to his own example, just as I try to please everything, or please everyone in everything I do. Be imitators of me as I seek to imitate Christ. He tells us to be people pleasers. I don't know about you, but I winced when I saw that. Because all my life I've been told that being a people pleaser is an insult. Because we tend to define people pleasers as those people who crave acceptance and approval from other people. And they're willing to change who they are, their identity, they're willing to compromise any principles in order to gain acceptance and approval from other people. And ultimately, those kind of people pleasers... It's all their behavior is rooted in selfishness. But what Paul is calling us to is to be people pleasers for the glory of God. Be people pleasers for the Lord. That means seeking to identify with the people around us. Seeking to please them, to be attractive to them. To be pleasant, to be nice to them, to be enjoyable to them. Not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. And when you put it that way, there are limits to how far we will go in order to please people because we must please the Lord in all that we do. And I just want to close by asking you to consider where you are on the spectrum. 
We all tend to go in one of two directions when it comes to this being a principled and winsome witness for the glory of God. Either we tend to do what I tend to do, which is we tend to want to please people by never offending them. We want to make other people like us and be kind to us and do things for us. We want to please people for our own glory. Therefore, we don't want to bring up the gospel because it's a stench in the nose of so many around us. And when our biblical principles are compromised, we want to take the easy route that's going to be the least offensive to people. And we become people pleasers in the world sense, not in the sense in which Paul is talking about, because we don't want to offend people with the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. But then there's another, I think, smaller group of Christians, and I tend to do this at times too, but this becomes their, plain, their, their, their most obvious way of operating in the world, is they refuse to engage in the culture. Matter of fact, they stand apart from it, and they condemn it, and they walk around with protest signs, and they shout angry slogans at the world and its culture. They don't want to engage, and what they do is that they add offense to the gospel and nobody wants to listen to them. In both cases, the gospel is not proclaimed and people are not saved through the blood of Christ. We are called upon to live in that gray, dangerous area where the kingdom of God and its ethics and its principle and its savior collides with the cultures of this world and the gates of hell will not prevail if we faithfully represent the Lord we serve and show his glory in the way that we live. Let me close by reading Paul's example. He points us to his example in verse 1 of chapter 11. Let me read you again what he said about his example back in chapter 9 in the middle of, chapter, uh, in the middle of verse 22. He said, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. All things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Let's pray. Father, it is good to come to the Lord's table after hearing your word challenge our faithfulness and our witness to the world around us. There have been so many ways in which we have compromised our own consciences and we have sought to hide our relationship with Jesus Christ and our trust in his promises but maybe we've been guilty of the other extreme of standing apart and withdrawing from our culture and shouting angrily at its offenses and its its vileness. Lord, give us the courage, give us the biblical wisdom and knowledge and understanding, give us strong consciences in Christ so that we can engage the culture in the way that you've called us to, in a way that brings transformation and opens the door for the gospel among those in whom your spirit is working. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.